0: If you have your copy of God's Word, the Holy Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We continue our journey through this wonderful book of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the living God, and together we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. And now, living Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would cause us to once again hear and to cherish the voice of our shepherd, Jesus Christ. We pray that by his words of direction and comfort, we, your sheep, may once again see our place in the sheepfold under his care and guidance. We pray that you might direct us again to obedience and comfort and gospel grace. Help us to this day, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if like me, there are times in this life where you find yourself to be quite perplexed, quite perplexed that on the one hand, the rest of the world doesn't seem to have the kind of wrestling that you do, and on the other hand, quite perplexed that you sometimes find yourself going back and forth between suffering and hurt and heaviness and joy. It can be quite perplexing. And I wonder if, like me, you find yourself increasingly in these days wondering how it is that you can go from joy and an immense suffering and heaviness and the weight of hurts. Peter, the apostle of the Lord, addresses that kind of challenge in our text. But in our verses this morning, you will notice that in verse six, he begins, in this you greatly rejoice. It's necessary for us to then ask the question, what is the this? (laughs) What is it that we rejoice in? And of course, it's the verses that come before and all that they proclaim. We just began this book a few weeks ago, and you remember that after the opening where Peter says that Christians are strangers and exiles and aliens, He then says, but your children, you are journeying in a land that is not your home, but you have a safe and secure birth certificate and you have an inheritance. And there in verse three, Peter says, God is to be praised. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, this resurrection, this hope, this being born again comes with an inheritance that is unchanged by any and by all. And it's reserved in heaven for you. And that you, Christian, and that I am kept by God's power through faith. So then in our text, Peter can say, in this, all of these realities, you greatly rejoice. But almost as if there might be some temporary bad news, perhaps you read those next words, though now. I don't think in this room I have to explain to you that suffering is a reality. In fact, I know many of you deeply, and I know the kind of suffering that you've been through. Little hurts, big hurts. Hurts that are somewhere in the middle. Though now. And this is where I wonder if like me. You find yourself to be perplexed. Because on the one hand. There is great rejoicing. In our inheritance that is to come. There is great rejoicing. That we are kept by the power of the living God. And yet. Though now. For a little while. If need be, we are grieved. I wonder if, like me, you ask the question, how can we be grieved and also rejoice? Is that possible? And that's the question that Peter answers in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. I want us to see three realities to this dynamic of grieving and yet rejoicing. Of going through suffering and yet having, as the text says in verse now, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Are we just strange? Do we as Christians just not really know how to handle our emotions like everyone else? Or Is there a reality about us that means that while we grieve and while we suffer, we also rejoice? And I think that's the case. Three truths this morning regarding a believer's suffering. The first is this, the heart behind a believer's suffering. What does the heart of a Christian sufferer look like? Peter gives us this, doesn't he, in verses 6, the beginning of verse 7. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Again, the this is verses 3 through 5, the hope that we have. And also verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. That all of this suffering will test our faith. And on the final day, we will receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our soul. There is great rejoicing in this. (coughs) But verse 6 does say, doesn't it? Though now. There is a what is to come, and there is a now. Before we look at these two realities, just consider the nature of the timetable there. The now is temporal, it is short, it has an end. But what is to come is unending, it's everlasting. It doesn't end, it's not able to be defiled or corrupted, and that alone should give us hope. So the sufferings, the trials of which Peter speaks, are what is current, just for now. See, we read the phrase, though now, as bad news, don't we? Particularly when we're hurting. We open our Bibles, we go there for hope, and we read these words, In this you greatly rejoice. And perhaps you have a really hard time as you look around at other believers and you think to yourself, I don't see much rejoicing in my life. And then you read the words, though, now, and it's as if the Bible, like every other thing in our lives, is a book that is going to put forth for us the reality that, yes, the other shoe will eventually drop. But the though now actually is a phrase full of hope, though now for a little while. The living God is proclaiming to you, Christian, that your trials, your suffering, your grieving, as difficult as it is, is just a little while. It may be a lifetime. It may be a few days. But it's just a little while. And so the heart behind the believer who is suffering is that there is rejoicing in heart, even as he or she is going through just for now, these various trials. But what does Peter mean when he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. If need be. How are we to think about our trials and about our hurts and about our sufferings? And when we suffer, are, are we just the one Christian out of a million that really needs to suffer for a particular reason? What What is the, the need be mean? I turn over a few pages to first Peter, chapter four. First Peter, chapter four and verse 19. Suffering occurs again in this book. Notice what Peter says in verse 19 of chapter four. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Now, Peter is going to say throughout this book that suffering has a purpose and that in our suffering, we should again, as it were in our hearts, commit our souls to the living God. But if we move outside of first Peter and, and look at other passages of scripture, suffering is regularly portrayed as a path that we can expect. Just a couple of passages you can turn there or jot these down to meditate upon later. Acts 14 and verse 22. Acts 14, 22 One of the missionary journeys of the apostles and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We don't often tell new believers that in 21st century American Christianity, do we? I want to disciple you. You're going to suffer. But that's what these apostles are doing. Discipling new believers as they're strengthening their faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Or how about Romans chapter 5? Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and following. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Or just read the first few verses of the book of James. Suffering is regularly portrayed as the path for believers. Thankfully, Peter helps us to see that this suffering comes with a heart that is full of rejoicing in what God has promised and yet though now for a little while we will be grieved by various trials, but what is the if need be? This phrase points to verse 7. Verse 7 tells us what the if need be of verse 6 is all about. If need be that the genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The if-need-be is not the whims of a God who batters you around because He does not care for you. The if-need-be signifies to us that there is a purpose behind all of our trials and sufferings and that the world is not in charge of it. You are not in charge of it. I am not in charge of it. Our circumstances are not in charge of it. The living God who has a very loving purpose is behind all of it. The if need be is that God has a plan even in our deepest hurts. We, beloved, are not subject to our trials as if they are God. But God is the one who... Who directs for a very loving purpose all that we go through. The heart behind a believer's suffering is a heart that has something to rejoice in. And that sometimes is what makes us strange. We grieve, yet as those who have hope, the New Testament says. Or as Paul would say, we're sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Well, what is it that we're grieved by? Verse six, Peter says various trials, various trials. Notice that the grief, the pain, the suffering that we go through is not always the same, even in our lifetime. But it's not always the same as what others go through. There's not one path of trials that we will all walk through. Various trials, various trials. Some of you will experience physical pain, others, spiritual or emotional challenges. Others of us will battle with the heaviness of mind or the world. Interestingly enough, the old King James version, instead of saying grieved by various trials, says something like ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations and the word temptations there means trials. Although even the temptations that surround us are trials, are they not? Heaviness. Trust me, I, I like updated English. It's helpful for us all, but that's a wonderful rendering. The heaviness. Do you feel as though you're walking through a world that is full of heaviness? Take heart, believer. The living God and his love has told you not only that it's just for a little while, not only that there's a purpose. There's a need for you to go through this in God's plan for your good and his love for you. But he's also told you that he is the one that is behind it. The last thing that we should say about the heart of a believer in suffering is that grief And pain and suffering can occur simultaneously with rejoicing in God. You know, there is a mindset that says, I'm either grieving, hurting, suffering, or I'm rejoicing. Now, many of you in this room perhaps are aware that, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. But functionally, isn't that the way that we live sometimes in the Christian life? If I'm suffering, if I'm hurting, it must be that I have absolutely no faith And that I'm not rejoicing at all in my soul. But Peter makes it absolutely clear. We are people who can go through both at the same time. Listen to what Puritan Matthew Poole says about this. He begins this part of his commentary on this passage by asking a question. He says, question, how could they be in heaviness and yet rejoice? Isn't that the question that you have? If you're honest with a text like this. How can they, meaning Christians, be in heaviness and yet rejoice? He says, answer, their grief and joy were about different objects. They might be in heaviness by reason of present afflictions and rejoice in hope of future glory. They might grieve as men and rejoice as saints. Sense of suffering might affect them, and yet the faith of better things coming relieve them. If their heaviness did in any degree abate their joy, yet it did not wholly hinder it. This is so crucial, not only in false prosperity gospel teachings around the world, but just false, watered down Christian greeting card kind of Christianity. Rejoicing in God does not mean that you always feel well. And Poole knows it, and he's absolutely right. If their heaviness did in any degree abate their joy, yet it did not wholly hinder it. Brothers and sisters, there are some of you in this room who have been taken to the very brink of despair. And yet, you know, even though you felt no emotion, perhaps, surrounding your joy, you could not get out of your mind that there was a God who sent his son who is coming again for you. Away, away with the cheap teaching that you cannot suffer and yet at the same time have a rejoicing even in seed like form in your soul. I didn't even finish Poole's quote. If their heaviness did in any degree abate their joy, yet it did not wholly hinder it. And though their joy did overcome their heaviness, yet it did not wholly exclude it. Holy W H. Fully, completely. End quote. He's absolutely right. We need to see the heart behind a believer's suffering is, yes, that we're rejoicing. But we need not confuse rejoicing in God and what is to come with the reality that there will be hurts. That there will be griefs. What if one of the greatest acts of faith in the life of a Christian as their faith is being tested is that even in the midst of the worst storms, they kept looking for the rays of the sun. Well, we see, don't we, the heart behind a believer's suffering. But secondly, Peter tells us the reason for much of a believer's suffering. Now, I say much of because there are some kinds of suffering that we go through that Peter doesn't speak of. He does say various trials, but I'm thinking, for instance, of the consequences of sin. I don't think Peter has in mind here necessarily that kind of suffering. But the reason for much of a believer's suffering, we've seen the answer. But verse seven tells us that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I read it that way on purpose. Maybe your English translation renders it slightly differently, but it's almost as if there's a parenthesis theres not there, isn't there? Let me read it the way that I think is helpful for us to get in view what is meant here. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the reason for much of a believer's suffering? The testing and proving of our faith. The reason why we suffer various trials in this brief lifetime is for the testing of our faith. And that ought to cause us to take a step back and say. That then means that faith and its genuineness is really, really, really important. It must be costly. In fact, that's what Peter says with that little parenthesis, doesn't it? He says, being much more precious than gold. Boys and girls, in Peter's day, what was the most precious material thing you could have? Gold. Peter picks the thing that the world loves, that it clings to, gold, money. And he says, the genuineness of your faith is worth much more than gold. And guess what he says? Gold, even though it's tested by fire, like your faith will be tested by fire and trials, even though gold is tested by fire, it perishes. But the genuineness of your faith leads to an end that will never perish. So it might be a mouthful in English, but that discussion there of gold is so helpful. What the world says is the most precious is something that perishes, even though it is tested by fire. So think about the genuineness of your faith being tested. What happens when gold is put in fire? Well, it comes out shining brighter. But other things that have other metals, boys and girls, that have kind of gotten mixed in with gold. Because have you ever seen gold heated up? It kind of turns into a liquid. And other things can kind of get in there. Things that make it less pure, or sometimes less shiny. And when a skillful craftsman puts gold in a fire, it's very hot. Which if the gold could feel, would hurt. But all of those impurities begin to melt away. Or... They separate away. And some of you who have lived in the Christian life can say, I am a testimony to 1 Peter 1.7. I remember distinctly that this season of hurt that I went in was something that I know the Lord used to strengthen and increase my faith in this way or a whole host of ways. It made me less prideful. It made me less dependent on the things of this world. It stripped an idol out of my soul, and that was painful, but it was good. (sighs) At the risk of potentially asking an insensitive question in the middle of some of your hearts that are really hurting today. Is it worth it if for a little while God proves that your faith is genuine and that you shine brighter on that day? Is it worth it? Because Peter reveals not only the heart behind a believer's suffering, rejoicing, having a hope in the midst of deep hurts, but he also says there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. That takes us back, doesn't it, to the if-need-be of verse 6. But thirdly, Peter helps us to understand the result of a believer's suffering. Do you know that your suffering not only has a purpose, but it actually is used by God to bring about something? Notice what Peter says. Verse seven. That your genuineness of faith may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes, when you think about living the Christian life and you see words like praise, honor and glory, you, like me, naturally think to yourself, this must be that my life glorifies God. And yes, that is true. But here. At the end of verse seven. I don't think Peter simply means that through all your suffering, you can finish there on heaven's shores and say, my life brought glory to God, although that is always in view, believer. But I think if you look closely, if I look closely, the tested genuineness of our faith, which is a gift from God, will result in praise and honor and glory Peter has in view the ultimate reward to the believer. And he's not alone. Turn over to Romans chapter 2 for just a moment. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. We need to go to verse 5 for the context. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness, righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then notice what Paul says. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, this is not Paul's way of subtly Turning Christianity into the man centered Christianity that it often is in much of the evangelical world. But that there is actually a living of life with the glory of God and the praise that He will give His people in view. Or how about Romans chapter 2, verse 10? but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good. Or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. We are right to guard worship from the praise of men. We are right not to design worship and theological discussions in a man-centered way. But the Bible does speak of the reality that as we live our lives for the glory of God, we also know that there is coming a day when the one who has begotten us again or caused us to be born again will say, Well done. This is not just a reference to God getting glory, although that is true. These three things in first Peter. These three words, praise, honor and glory. Point. To vindication and recognition by God himself. I notice when this comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. Notice that the genuineness of our faith only matters as Jesus is revealed. What is it that another apostle says? If Jesus Christ has not been raised, you are among all people the most to be pitied. It's a waste of time if he's not been raised. And I think by implication, it is a waste of time if he will not one day be revealed. So what is in view is this revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes, we receive honor, but only because of him. And notice, verse 5 says that our salvation is ready to be revealed. And verse 7 says Jesus is ready to be revealed. We saw this last week. The revelation of Jesus is the revelation of your salvation. And what Peter has in view in verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that when he comes... His people will be vindicated. Their faith will receive the final end. Christ, who is, according to 1 Corinthians 1:30, their salvation. Peter picks up on this theme later, doesn't he? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. The result of the believers suffering. Is that their faith is seen to be genuine. And that they are honored. And that there is a sense in which the living God. Says well done. No other words ought we to consider more precious than the voice of the living God who says at the end of the just a little while well done now Peter continues doesn't he he uses the phrase the revelation of Jesus Christ and then he reminds us of what some of us are painfully aware of Whom we have not seen, yet we love. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Whom, having not seen, you love. This is a statement of all believers after that first generation of believers that actually saw him. And even Peter himself and Paul and James and John had not seen then what they will see one day. All believers then are in a situation where they love someone who they have never seen. It doesn't usually work that way in our world. The part of the hope of the believer who suffers is that they love the one that is to come. And he is going to be revealed and we haven't had that experience yet. But we love him. Remember, John, in the writing of the Gospel of John, says that the things that he has written are that people might believe. In fact, Jesus says to one of his disciples, you believe in me because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Thomas Schreiner, writing on this passage, says this, quote, Peter's main point in the verse is clear. Believers who suffer are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They love Jesus Christ and rejoice in him, even though they have never seen him and do not see him now. Their lives are characterized by a hope that fills the present with love and joy. End quote. As is often the case, there are bookends. And in this case, there are as well. Notice the next phrase. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice. Peter returns to the same word that he used in verse six. Rejoice. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here we get a picture in the midst of suffering. Of a rejoicing that is full of joy and looks to future glory. Perhaps part of the reason why our joy in the midst of suffering is inexpressible or unable to be uttered is because we don't have words to explain it. I mean, think about what happens when you suffer. Some of you have suffered in this last year grief, sorrows, trials. And as you suffer, there is deep hurt and yet. There is this abiding sense, even if faint at times, that there is hope. How do you describe that? (laughs) The cemetery looks very different when a bunch of Christians are gathered around a grave. The ICU room, two minutes after the death of a saint, looks very different when a bunch of Christians are around the bed. The news that comes that the diagnosis is confirmed looks very different when the ears hearing it are those who have faith in Christ. It doesn't look different because it doesn't hurt. It looks different because inexpressibly there is a sense of joy that God is in control. And that sense of joy is not knowing all that he's doing, but trusting him nonetheless. Michaels, in his commentary, describes it this way, quote, It is an overwhelming joy, radiant with the glory of that day. You see, there's a constant push, isn't there, in this text to something that is to come. And that's what makes it so unique and so different and sometimes difficult for us. Because it's not as though we're 50% sad and 50% happy. It's that we're 110% sad, hurting, grieving, and yet deep down in our soul, we are not overwhelmed by it. We're not torn asunder by it. Because we know even if it takes the loving words of a brother or sister, even if it takes the gentle words of Christ through his scriptures, we know and we remember this is not the final word. The closing of the casket is not the final act. Oftentimes, when I preach the funerals of believers, In cases where the saints gather in a cemetery, this happened just a few months ago. It's been my custom as of late, as we read passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to say we're gathered here and we are about to place the body of our beloved so-and-so in the ground. But this is not the final word. This is not the final activity here in this cemetery. For one day, soon, Christ will send his angels and gather up from the four winds of the earth, the elect, and they will rise. Does that mean that the sadness in that moment goes away? Does that mean that if there is a believer there who is hurting, they should say, I must have weak faith because I can't be happy right now. No! In that moment, there is various trial that is grieving and yet there is a settled posture, even if also faint. This is not the end. This is not the final word. My grief is not all there is. It may be all consuming, it feels, but it's not all there is. So Peter ends then with a helpful word as to why the genuineness of our faith being tested is so Worth it. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith or the goal of your faith or that which your faith connects you to. The salvation of your souls. The salvation of your souls. Peter and Paul, it seems wrote music from the same sheet as they played 2 Corinthians. Paul writes these words to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary or in the words of Peter, they're just a little while. But the things which are not seen are eternal or in the words of Peter, incorruptible, undefiled, never fading away, reserved And kept by the power of God for you. Brothers and sisters. There is indeed deep pain. And perhaps like me. I wonder if at times you wrestle. With how to make sense of grief and rejoicing. The precious savior through his apostle Peter by his spirit. Has given us. Such precious promises. And one of them is. Though now. For a little while. Just a little while. You may be thinking to yourself. This is all fine and good. But. I'm not sure about Christ. I'm here and someone invited me. And I, it sounds like you people have. Have. A hope that's helpful. I would want you to hear, friend, that this hope that is offered here in the Scripture is a hope which is settled by faith in Christ. A faith that looks to Him for forgiveness of sins. A faith that looks to Him as the only one who perfectly obeyed the Father. A faith that says, if I am clothed in His righteousness by faith, And my sins will have been atoned for. And the record of righteousness required of me will be my clothing forever. But it's in him. It's not in me. Maybe the question for you today is not suffering. But the need of a savior. Christ says to any who have ears to hear. Come to me. And I will not turn you away. For you, friend, I would. Say the gospel offers you Christ, a Savior, and an eternal hope. Believer, and particularly believer who's suffering, just know that the living God is not holding your feet to the fire aimlessly or out of hatred for you, but for a little while is bringing about an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Living God, help your people today as we look to the sun. Help your people today who are suffering and who are hurting, going through various trials, be they large or small. Help us not to be confused when grief comes and it seems as though joy is dissipating. Help us to see that you have placed within us a hope that is present even when we grieve. Bless our souls, O Lord Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.